Trust you found your place in the book of Psalm, Psalm 106, Psalm 106, and I'll be reading from verse 1 down to verse number 8. Psalm 106 and verse number 1. The Bible says, Praise ye the Lord. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? And who can show forth all his praise? Blessed are they that keep judgment, and he that doeth righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. O visit me with thy salvation, that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for your precious word. We thank you for the privilege we have to look into it and to hear from you. And I pray that you would use your word in a special way to speak to every heart. You know where we are and you know what we need. And I pray that you would use your word as you've done time and time again to meet needs and to draw us into a closer relationship with you. I pray for someone here today who does not know you as personal Lord and Savior. May today be the day of their salvation. Dear Lord, without you, we can do nothing. May we recognize that you are all we need. And I pray that you would use your word in a special way to communicate that to every heart and that each heart would be receptive to what you have to say. For every believer, may each one be challenged to be closer drawn to you. Give me the words you love me to say. Cleanse me of sin and to me of self. Fill me with your precious Holy Spirit that I may preach what thus saith the Lord. And we'll be careful to give you all the honor and glory, for you alone are worthy of it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You may be seated. I have come across some people, and I'm sure you have come across these types of individuals as well, who have been gifted with the ability to take things that the average person would throw into the trash, but they have been gifted with the ability to restore them to something valuable, something desirable, something worthwhile. These kind of individuals tend to be those who don't throw away anything. They always see the potential in something, no matter how dilapidated it looks, but they see the potential for restoration. I remember some time ago we were uh, at the church and we had a work day and we were cleaning up and, and you know, you got the group who want to just throw away everything and they, everything is for the dumpster. Then you have a next group comes in like, no, 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 don't, don't throw that. I mean, I could fix that. I, I, could, I could restore that, right, Brother Barrett? They're like, give it to me. And then they do something amazing with it. They end up selling it. They end up using it. They end up restoring it. The difference between those who restore and those who don't is that those who don't 
just don't see the potential in what is being thrown away. But those who restore and those who want to keep see beyond what you and I see. They see the potential of what that thing can become. You know, my friends, restoration is at the core of God's plan of salvation and redemption. It's the essence of what Jesus has done in our lives for those of us who know him as personal Lord and Savior. Turn with me. Hold your places in Psalm 106, but turn with me uh, very quickly and briefly to Ephesians chapter 2, and you'll see here that restoration is really what Jesus did when he saves every single sinner. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. Look at these verses here as Paul reminds these saints at Ephesus where they came from and what they were before God's amazing restoration job was manifested in their lives. In verse number 1 of Ephesians chapter 2, he says, And you hath he what? Quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Notice this. Wherein in time past he walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, to the spirit that work, now worketh in the children of disobedience. Among whom also we had our conversation. Look at this. In times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. I mean, this is the messed up state. This is the state where we were relegated to the trash heap. But verse number four, but God, amen, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are he saved and hath raised us up together and made us, look at this, sit together in what? Heavenly Places in Christ Jesus. My friends, the greatest restoration job ever done was done by the Lord Jesus Christ on a lost sinner who has raised him up to sit in heavenly places. But God's restoration job is not just evident in what he did in our salvation, but it's also evident in our ongoing sanctification. You see, my friend, even when you are saved because of a flesh that we have, and when we say flesh, we mean our sin nature, we still have the capacity to fall. We have the capacity to sin. We have the capacity to go uh, deviant to the way that God intended for us. And God, in his mercy and love, still gives us a pathway to restoration. We know that First John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in, within our sanctification, our progressive and ongoing sanctification, we see God's hand of restoration upon our lives. This restoration, my friend, is for our fellowship with God. And it's vital for our personal walk and for our spiritual growth. 
Restoration is needed in our lives individually. It is needed for our families. It is needed for our communities. It's needed for our nation. And indeed, it is needed for our world. You say, Pastor, we need it. I acknowledge. Why doesn't it happen? My friend, here's the key. And here's the essence of this message that God has laid on my heart this morning. We have no doubt or question in our mind. There should be no no question as to whether or not restoration is needed. We look around at our world and we see where we are. But in order for this restoration to happen in our lives, individually and collectively, we must have a passionate desire for it. You see, my friend, without a yearning, without a longing, without a passion for it, we stay in a state of apathy and nonchalance as things get worse and worse. In Psalm 106, the psalmist recognized the destitute state of God's people. But he went further to plead and to seek God passionately for restoration on behalf of his people. My friend, when we look around at our society, we see the tragic decline before our very eyes. And the question is, for each and every one of us, are we going to be content with things as they are? Are we sick enough of what the world is doing to our families and to our communities to seriously appeal and to seek God's face for restoration? I trust that we're not at a place where we just throw up our hands and say, whatever will be, will be. My friend, God is a God who is able to restore. But there's a particular approach that you and I must have if this restoration is the, indeed is going to be a reality. And so I want to preach a message this morning I've entitled, A Passion for Restoration. A passion for restoration. My friend, you hear me say all the time around here that when it comes to doing business with God, it has to be heart business. It has to be real. It has to be genuine. And when it comes to passion, listen, passion is not something you can work up. Passion exists in the heart. You know, we are passionate about what we want to be passionate about. And if we want God to, 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 to take us seriously when it comes to restoring what has been lost, restoring what has been broken, restoring what, what, what seems as though it uh, is incapable of being restored, my friend, we simply have to have a passion to see it happen. And that was evident in the heart of the psalmist as we see these verses here in Psalm 106. And if we pattern what the psalmist did uh, and communicated to God in a genuine manner, my friend, God will intervene. A passion for restoration. Notice, first of all, and you jot this down if you're taking notes, notice with me in verse number one and two that the psalmist acknowledged the sovereign's character. He acknowledged the sovereign's character. My friend, before we can even ask God for anything, we must understand and know some things about who God is. Who are we approaching? 
And so he acknowledges the sovereign's character. Now, there's some things that he recognized and acknowledged here that I want to point out to you. First of all, he acknowledged God's goodness. Notice in verse number one, he says, Praise ye the Lord, or give thanks unto the Lord. Why? For he is what? For he is good. My friend, we must be willing to acknowledge the goodness of God. Has God been good to you? I think he's been good to only some of you. But can you testify to the goodness of God? My friend, it is indisputable that God is a good God. My friend, he woke you up this morning. My friend, there are a whole list of things that we take, we take for granted that God has given to us. And were it not for his mercies, we will be consumed. It is indisputable that God is a good God. So the psalmist acknowledges God's goodness. But he also acknowledges that God is gracious. In verse number one, he says, for his Mercy endureth forever. You see, my friend, God has withheld from us so much of what we deserve. And in addition to that, he has given us far more than we do deserve. That's God's graciousness. The psalmist was overwhelmed. He says, God, as I approach you in my mess, even on behalf of myself and my people, I recognize that even though we are not where we should be, you still have withheld what we deserve. My friend, when we approach God in understanding his character, we have to understand that God is merciful. God is gracious. And as bad as we think things are, Wait, not for God's mercy, things would be far worse. So the psalmist acknowledges God's goodness. He acknowledged that God is gracious. And then he acknowledged God's greatness. Look at verse number two. He says, who can utter the mighty acts of God? the Lord. What was he saying? He's saying, God, when I think of who you are and what you have done, listen, you have created all of the universe. You have created my body. That is, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I can't even comprehend that you can make a mind and a brain and arms and lungs and all of the systems within our human body. And that's just one aspect and the entire universe. You must be a great God. Who can, who can utter his mighty acts? And here's why it's so important to acknowledge the character of God. Because when the psalmist understood, even to some degree, which we can never fully comprehend the entire being of God, he says, even with what I have come to understand in my human mind, which is limited, here's what I have to do. I have to respond with praise to this God. That's why he begins this psalm with the words, praise ye the Lord. He says, because I, God, I understand some things about who you are. He says, I have to respond with praise. And I also have to respond with 
thanksgiving. He says, oh, give what? Thanks unto the Lord. My friend, are you thankful for God? Are you thankful for what he does? Are you thankful for what he has done? The psalmist says, I have to acknowledge your character. It, it, it caused me to burst into praise and thanksgiving and worship. Look at verse number two. He says, who can show forth all his praise? Notice the attitude of adoration, of humility, that he was in awe of the greatness of God. My friend, you know where, why we are where we are as a society? We've lost our awe of God. You see, what happens, man thinks that he is God. Man thinks that he has now advanced to a level where he, he is on par with God. The psalmist says, make no mistake about it. God, I, 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 I'm going to get to uh, my request for restoration. But even before I can get to that point, I have to establish a foundation of acknowledgement of your character. So he, first of all, acknowledged the sovereign's character. But notice secondly, the psalmist in verse number three will observe, he associates success with consistency. Now, now these things are, these tenets and uh, premises are very important to restoration. You see, my friend, we can't just come to God and just say, God, uh, I have this, I need this, I need that. We can't bark orders to God without establishing some things at the onset. And so he associates success with consistency. Now look at what verse number 3 says. He says, Blessed are they that keep what? Judgment. And he that doeth righteousness at all times. Now, I love the fact that the psalmist mentions here that there's a required approach for having God's blessings. Now, he says, blessed are they that keep judgment. What he's saying here to God is that, God, I understand that you have some standards. You have some expectations of us when it comes to getting from you what we want. When we want to have your favor, your hand of a smile of approval, your blessings upon our lives, it requires, first of all, a required approach. So he says, Blessed are they that keep judgment. And what he's acknowledging to God is that, God, I understand who you are in your character, but I also recognize that because of your character, I cannot come to you any old way. I cannot come just because I am who I am without understanding who you are. You see, my friend, one of the reasons why we are in such a destitute state as a society, as a nation, as a people is because there's somehow this false belief that God is impressed with religious activity. That God is impressed with rituals. 
that God is impressed with routine. My friend, God is not impressed with religious activity. I mean, I'm amazed at how people uh, uh, somehow uh, have, have come to the place where there's a feeling that I can live like the devil Monday through Saturday, but just as long as I get my praise on on Sunday, I am good. My friend, that is a lie from the pits of hell. David, a man after God's own heart, in Psalm 51, when he was confronted by Nathan, listen, God, listen, if, if, it, if it were, I could bring sacrifices and all these things, and I, that those would work, I would bring it. But listen, the sacrifices of God are broken and a contrite heart. And so the the psalmist here in Psalm 106 says, listen, I recognize that if I want your blessings, there is a required approach. My friend, when it comes to God, we cannot come any old way. And I'm not saying that it means that we have to be all righteous to approach God. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what the Bible is saying. But he's saying I cannot come to God as if he has no expectations or requirements as to how I come. And so he says, blessed are they that keep judgment. Understand when you're approaching a holy God, there's a required approach. But notice as well, there is a reverent attitude. What the psalmist is saying, God, when I understand who you are, your blessings are not just, they're not just Cast off and just fall on whosoever will. At least the blessings that we need. Of course, it's God's blessings just to wake up in the morning. But he says, the blessings I'm seeking from you, the favor I want from you, it has a required approach, but it has to have a reverent attitude. He says, blessed are they that what? Keep judgment. You know what the psalmist was saying? God, I understand and recognize that to have your favor, I have to have the mindset that what you say matters. My friend, if we're going to have God's intervention in our lives, we have to have an attitude, a mindset, and a heart that what God says matters to us. It means something. You know that one of the clearest forms of disrespect to an individual is to have an attitude or a mindset, whether it is acted upon and even if it's in the heart, that says to that person, I couldn't care less what you say. That's an attitude of disrespect to the individual. My friend, when an attitude like that is communicated to God, my friend, God will not pour out his blessings. And so the psalmist says, God, blessed are they that that, that keep judgment. He says there has to be a required approach, a reverent attitude, and I must also remain accountable. Look at what he says in verse number three. 
These words are so profound. He says, blessed are they that keep judgment. And he that what? Doeth righteousness at all times. My friend, we're not perfect people, uh, but there is something to be said about a Christian, about a believer who consistently wants to please God. My friend, we're not even talking about getting to the point where we actually do everything that pleases God, but simply having a desire that, listen, in my heart of hearts, I want to please God at all times. I mean, can we just even get the want? A lack of consistency does not impress God, does not place a person in favor with God. I mean, you read the, 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 the Old Testament and all throughout the, the, the major prophets and the minor prophets and how God lamented in, 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 in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy about the, the, the up and down nature of his people. I mean, one minute they're serving him, next minute they're not. One minute they're serving him and the next minute they're serving idols. One minute they, they're praising God, next minute they're doing the other. Listen, God says, it makes me sick. My people are committing adultery with the world. Notice the psalmist has not, have not, has not even gotten to the point where he's making any request of God, but he's associating success and blessings and favor with a consistent approach towards this God. Notice thirdly, and so very importantly, when it comes to this matter of having a passion for God's restoration in our lives, we must thirdly admit our sinful condition. Look at what the psalmist says in verse number six. He says, we have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly. My friend, when it comes to being restored by God, this is probably the most critical step. It's not the easiest one for us. You see, my friend, it involves sincere admission without excuses, without pointing fingers at somebody else and who else is doing it. It, is, it, it requires an attitude of, uh, of no blame shifting. You see, my friend, when we admit and acknowledge where we are, when we don't rather acknowledge and admit where we are, it takes the focus away from our own state. And so the psalmist says in no uncertain terms, no excuses, no, well, what had happened was, and I did this because he did this and she did that, and they were doing this too. He says, listen, we have sinned with our fathers. He said, we have done wickedly. That, that's just the reality. You see, my friend, the reason why this step is so important is because it helps us to come to grips with the reality of why we are where we are. You see, the idea of restoration is to change from where we are to where God wants us to be. 
You see, this step is not about shaming. This step is not about tearing down. This step is a necessary step so that we can be sincere and honest before a holy God. Notice David's response in Psalm 51. Listen, he was not too prideful, even though he was the king, even though he was a man after God's own heart. Listen, I have messed up. And I must be willing to acknowledge that. Notice, fourthly, there's an awareness of the serious consequences. Now, the vast majority of this psalm is spent with the psalmist chronicling all that had happened in their history. How God's judgment had been poured out. He recalls example after example. And we're not going to look at all these verses. And I encourage you to take some time and read this psalm for yourself. But there are really like three categories of, of, of consequences that are evident and that have come upon the lives of the children of Israel and by extension us as a society, as a nation because of sin. He noticed the consequences of, that come from God's chastisement. Look at verse 17 and 18. You see, my friend, that there were times when God's direct hand of judgment is a consequence to man's departure from him. Look at verse number 17. He, he refers to the time when in the camp of children of Israel as they were making their way to the promised land and they rebelled against God and Korah and those guys. And he says in verse number 17, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. And a fire was kindled in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. My friend, make no mistake about it. Sin has consequences. Let me say that again. Sin has consequences. My friend, it is a principle of, all my, of the word of God. And it is a reality of life. Don't think that we're going to just do whatever and do whatever we please and violate God's word without consequences. And sometimes the consequences are such that God's direct hand of judgment intervenes on a situation in response to sin. That's exactly what happened when the earth opened up and swallowed up an entire group and camp of people. Why? Because of their rebellion against Moses. Moses, you think you are the only one who can lead. Why? We can't lead too. Moses saying, oh Lord have mercy. I'm not in this position because I wanted to be. I'm in this position because God's placed me here. And let, let, let God prove his hand and his decision in this matter and let God take control of it. The entire ground opened up and swallowed up an entire group of people. And can you imagine, after that happened, the people still came and cursed Moses and said, Moses, it's your fault that the earth opened up and all these people were perished. 
There are times in life when the consequences come directly where God's hand intervenes on a matter. My friend, this is serious business. But there are times when the consequences are simply the result of what I want to describe as personal choices. Now look at verse 34. And to 38. Understand that we don't have time to go through all these verses. I'm just highlighting. He says, they did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded. So we know that when God brought him into the promised land, he says, listen, get rid of the people who were there. Because if you let them stay, they're going to cause you to sin. They did not follow what God says. So he says, they did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them. They were disobedient, but were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. And they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Look at the consequences here. They did this to themselves. Imagine they took their own children and they sacrificed them to devils. My friend, when it comes to the consequences of sin, there are times when we have done it to ourselves. See, my friend, there's a principle in the Word of God of sowing and reaping. And what you sow, you will reap. That's why each and every single one of us must be careful what we decide to sow. But what we reap is a consequence of what we sow. Notice another example of God's judgment and the seriousness of the consequences. Notice in verse 41 and 42, the enemy's conquest. In other words, those who are against us and against God conquer us, defeat us. Look at verse 41. And he gave them into the hand of the heathen. And they that hated them ruled over them. The enemies also oppressed them. And they were brought into subjection under their hand. My friend, that there are times when God's judgment upon our lives manifests itself in that the wicked prosper over God's people. What the psalmist here is pointing out is that I have an awareness of the consequences, the serious consequences of sin. And then notice, after setting the table with all of that, the psalmist then does the last thing. He appeals for spiritual cleansing. No, we're talking about restoration. A passion for God to clean up what is messed up. To restore what is broken. To make alive what is dead. 
And the psalmist only gets to the place to request this after all that. My friend, God is in the restoration business. Amen? God can restore every single person individually. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are, how far gone. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. That's the testimony of the amazing grace and mercy of God. That's the kind of God we serve. God can restore your family. God can restore our churches. God can restore our society, our nation. But it requires a particular approach. It requires a passion to see that restoration take place. So after the psalmist acknowledges the sovereign's character, after he associates success with consistency, understanding that we are where we are because of a departure from what you've said. When he admits his sinful condition and their sinful condition. And when he comes to grips with the gravity of sin and its consequences, then he appeals for spiritual cleansing. Look, look at verse number 4 and 5. He says, Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. Oh, visit me with thy salvation. You see, this spiritual cleansing comes with seeking the right person. What does the psalmist say? Remember me who? Oh, Lord. My friend, if we want restoration, we're going to have to seek divine intervention. God's hand on us. He also makes a particular petition. Look at what he asks God for. He says, and I find this so instructive. It is, he says, God, remember me with the favor that thou bearest unto thy people. Or visit me with thy salvation that I may see the good of thy chosen, that I uh, may glory with thine inheritance. My friend, here is what we need to ask God for when it comes to restoration. God, I'm in desperate need of your favor. Why is this so key? My friend, the reason why this is so important is because if we're not asking God for his favor, then we are just treating God like a, a fix-it man. We're treating God as if he, he's at the end of our 911 call. We're just saying, God, I have this mess. I need you to come and clean it up. God, I have this situation. I need you to come and fix it for me. My friend, but what we need in our lives is the favor of God upon us. And that's exactly what the psalmist asks for. He says, God, I'm making a petition 
to you for your favor. And that is why verse number three is so important. And the reason why he asked for favor is because he associated success with consistency. He says, God, I'm making a petition to the right person, and I'm doing it for a particular purpose. Look at verse number 47 and 48, and we'll close with this. Notice, this is <laughs> so critical. He says, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the heathen to give thanks unto thy holy name and to triumph in thy praise. Listen, sometimes we want God to fix our situation, but the question is, why do we want God to do it? The psalmist is saying, God, I want your restoring hand upon my life so that when you clean me up, listen, I can give you praise in the presence of a lost and dying world. What a reason, what a purpose for restoration. When we ask God for something, what's the motive? When we say, God, restore my rebellious child. When we say, God, bless me with finances. When we say, God, give me a new job. When we say, God, give me a nice car. Say, God, give me good health. What is the reason for it all? Is it so that I can go out and serve the devil? It says, God, give me these things so that I can lift you up and magnify your holy name in the presence of a heathen nation and people. Why would God not do that? Is it just because I want to get out of a tight spot? The psalmist says that's the purpose. That's the reason. And no wonder he ends this psalm in verse 48 with praise. He began this psalm with praise. And he ends this psalm with praise. In verse 48, I'm convinced that by four, verse 48, the restoration had already taken place in the heart and life of this psalmist. And that is why in verse 48 he ends and he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, what? Amen. Praise ye the Lord. You know why praise erupted from the heart of this psalmist? Because he was so happy that a loving God, a forgiving God, a merciful God would restore me and has restored me. There's nothing like restoration. You are your friend of a conflict. The heart feels heavy. I mean, we act as if we're happy, but... Deep down, I mean, there's hurt, there's pain, there's agony. But when you work that thing out, listen, it feels like a weight has been lifted, doesn't it? And when the restoration takes place with Almighty God, I can burst out and say, praise ye the Lord. Listen, I messed up, but God, you are still merciful and you drew me back to yourself. All I can do is say, thank you, God. Praise ye the Lord. So the psalmist begins this psalm with praise and he ends it with praise. Why? Because there was a passion for restoration and restoration took place.
And the results were simply amazing. My friend, we are in a desperate state. We are in a place that we must be honest that we would rather not be. We have to do some serious soul searching and ask ourselves, how did we get here? Why are we here? What is needed to change course? Are we just going to continue in the same vein? Are we going to be content with things as they are? Are we going to be content with buying more security systems? Buying more cameras? Are we going to ask God with sincerity and with some passion to restore us? To clean up our mess and to bring us to a place where we can shine as lights in a wicked world. My friend, we have to be serious and be genuine before God who sees all. I'm glad that God doesn't require perfection, but one thing he requires is sincerity. We can't play games with God. We can't be one foot in the world and one foot in the church. We're not, we're not fooling anybody. And most of all, we're not fooling God. And if we fool everybody but we don't fool God, what have we accomplished? So the psalmist says, God, we need you. We need your favor. We can't function without it. And I pray that for every single person here today, whether you are a born-again believer or not, if you're not saved, your desire for restoration is to be restored from a lost condition, to be quickened and to be made alive through the Spirit of God. If you're a born-again believer, it must be to be restored, to be maintained in a right relationship so that we can have fellowship and the blessings of Almighty God question today is, wherever you are spiritually, do you have a passion for restoration, whether individually, on behalf of a society, a nation, and a world?